Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Poolside Perspectives Podcast. I am Kevin Woodhurst, and with me is my good friend, Mike Farley, and we're so glad you found this podcast. Together, we have been homeowner advocates in outdoor living and the pool industry for over 30 years. So we understand the challenges you face creating your backyard paradise. We know your curiosity is not enough to ensure your success. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about the design process and practical steps to help you create that space. We'll have some fun mixed in with it, some aha moments, and this is no fluff. No one has time for that. So we're going to get serious and get very particular about all of these topics. Whether you are a new homeowner with your first remodel or a seasoned homeowner competing your last dream home, we are here to help you end up with what you dreamed of. From pools to patios, pizza ovens to pergolas, porcelain to pumps, pool party to permits, ping pong tables to the processes to your paradise. This is straight talk and action steps. Let's get started. Materials are a large part of the wow feature that you get into a backyard. Absolutely. I think materials have a lot to do with, and we've touched on this earlier, the part of the country that you're in, because things are readily available. And so shipping's not bad. So from a cost standpoint, but what's transpired over the last 20 years, I would say is you used to deal with the materials just in your region. When you were in Arizona, you were dealing with the the pink flagstone. And when you're in New England, you're dealing with New England bluestone and when I was in Sacramento, we were dealing with aggregate decks because those were all the materials that were available. I remember the first job I was working on in Texas and we were in the stone yard and the guy's like, what's this? And I was like, I have no earthly idea what that is. Mm-hmm. And so I went and inquired and they're like, oh, that is Turkish travertine. And at that point, we were starting to just bring travertine in from Mexico, which was, did away with the Cantera phase of our life, which was great to be done with. It's very soft stone. Yes. So the travertine was coming in from Mexico, but this had all kinds of color ranges to it versus everything coming out of Mexico travertine wise at that point was ivory. That was it. And then we basically started getting some of the brown colors, the darker browns, but this was all kinds of range of colors. And so I actually, this guy was like, that's what mom wants. And I was like, Okay, let me find out what it's going to cost. And this was 20 years ago. It was about a $150,000 upgrade on the deck. So they had a lot of deck. They had a lot of deck, but we had to buy the container. So we couldn't just get square feet out of Houston because it was stored there. We had to go to the quarry, Mm. which was in Turkey, and order it. Now, one thing that I found out later... So we went and gave, they wanted 50% of the money up front. So I had to go get a check for $75,000 for this material, which I was shocked that someone would pay that, but that's what mom wanted. So that's what they were getting. And uh, happy so, wife, happy life. And he's just, he was a very smart man. So we went to get this material and we bought it. I didn't understand. And this was probably in September or October. Come to find out, Corey shut down for the winter. So no stone was quarried for the next four months, but nobody told us this. So they're like, your stones, our stone was on the way for seven months, eight months, nine months. We finally got the stone. It was like 10 months later. We were lucky that this was a new home build and 
we were at a point that the house was taken a while anyway, but there would have been a case that this would have created a lot of problems later on. But it all came down to they loved this particular material. And then there were some boulders on the job, which were shipped in from Arizona called Schist, which were, I couldn't believe how heavy these things were. They delivered like two rocks on a semi. But anyway, you can get into all kinds of different materials and give you a different flavor. And where I was going with this whole thing is, sorry, is people get materials from all over the world now. Mm. It's not just that we're bringing stuff in from a local area. People see stuff in magazines and are like, well, I want that. So it's uh, pretty interesting, all the different things, everything from wood to stone to tile that are imported from all over the place. And if we're planning properly and everybody's on the same page, that can easily be done. It's not always going to take 10 months to get product. Oh, yes. This was 20 years ago. In an Amazon world, we don't get stuff that fast. This is why planning becomes so crucial to these backyards. The first thing that you want to do when you get under contract with something is to purchase your materials because that's the one thing that can go up substantially that we've seen and the availability of it. So. If you get those things, then you probably have enough time to do such. And that's one of the things I love about this organization is that's part of the protocol, is let's get the stuff on order, get it going. Materials can create vast different looks. You can take the same project and put different materials on it. It's totally different. It can be totally different. So that's the fun of the first thing that I look at with materials with clients. I say there's two main things that you're going to look at on, on a swimming pool. That's the water. And that's the deck. So let's talk about what color of hue of water. Is it going to be blue? Is it blue green? Is it light, very light color? Is it medium color? Is it dark color? Because all those are going to have a substantial difference in appearance of the project. Do you have a favorite? I say no, but my projects say that I'm a liar because I have a lot of projects that come out that are the same colors. Although I will say that For a long time, I had more variety of color on my projects than most people did. Again, I'm going to explore what the customer wants. I'm going to tell you here's the pros and here's the cons and here's the cost. And so when it comes to watercolor, it is affected. It affects the temperature of the pool to some extent, which is something that's important to consider here when, especially after a summer when we had all those 105 and 108 degree days. I know you guys thought it was pretty brutal here this last summer, didn't you? Oh, I'm sure that's just a normal summer for those in Arizona. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's something you have to consider is the color is going to have some bearing on the temperature in the pool, though there's overcomes to that and the fact that I'm going to put a chiller on it and I'm going to put a heater on it. I don't care what color I pick, I can make my temperature work. So you can fix that. But also just, is it something that's going to blend? Certain colors, I think, give a certain feel, a very light blue to a light blue-green looks totally different than a black pool. So they're different feels. So although I've done more black pools, I would say, in the last two years than I have in the last 20 years combined because the architecture of the home is dictating that a lot. Mm. So there's a lot of homes that are, everything's white and black. Sure. So they want the backyard. They want everything white or black. Mm -hmm. There isn't a white pool because you put water in a pool and the water reflects the sky. Even if you put a white product in the pool, the water is not going to look white. It's not going to look transparent. Correct. No. 
unless you make it six inches deep, and there's very little reflection at six inches. But you don't have a favorite color for a pool? I do a lot of medium blues. Should I talk about my personal pool? Sure. That could pigeonhole People me. would yeah. love to talk. I'd love to hear about your personal pool. You're pretty secretive about it. I don't want to get pigeonholed into a style and people are like, that's your style. So I will preface this and say, there's a couple of things that we thought about with our personal pool. When I designed my personal pool, it had a lot to do with the setting of the yard more than the architecture of the home. And the setting of the yard was very organic. And it's a hillside with a lot of trees on it. And so the pool that we designed was very organic to the extreme. So there's 10 feet of deck that touches my pool. The rest of it is plant material that's around my pool. So it's a very different style. And so when we did the pool, my wife was like, absolutely, we are not doing black. I cannot have a black bottom pool. And I was like, well, there's a lot of pros to it. She said, doesn't matter. I don't want a black bottom pool. Now, since then, she's seen a lot of black bottom pools that I've done. And they're like, that's not that bad. Because we did one shade off of black, which was a very dark blue. It's a pebble sheen. Midnight. It's ocean blue. Ocean blue, yeah. And with ocean blue, now what you get with that pool also is high reflection. Absolutely. Along with black. It's not that much lighter than black. It definitely is lighter. It's a different hue. And it's a different hue for sure. different hue. But yes, it is not any lighter in color than a black bottom pool. But what you get is a lot of reflection. And what I explain to people with that color is it's going to look different on almost every project because it's going to reflect what's around it. And so in my case, it's reflecting green. Yep. And so my pool doesn't look as dark blue as it does in a lot of the same product in other locations because of all the trees that are around it. So in some ways, if I had just done a black, it was going to reflect the green too. It probably would have been pretty close to the same color. But as you looked at it, so there are cases where people want something that's a rich color, but they're like, that's just too dark. And so there's blue surf pebble sheen, which is what I use a lot of. Great color. Which I used to use a lot of prism blue, which was an original... Uh, again, we're getting into uh, blue surf is a color, the only color that Pebble Sheen came out with in the last 18 years until just last month, they came out with a new color. So a new black. Yes. I'm excited about that. I am as well. And all these colors of the stones and the pigment create the color of the water that's reflecting the sky. I tell everybody it will never look like the sample of material that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. It's always going to add blue to it because our sky is blue. And so you're going to have a combination of these things. And so photographs are by the best way and to show people a dozen photographs of a single color because they'll be like, there's no way that's the same color. And I'm like, yeah, that's the same one. It's a different setting and here's what you've got. It's totally true. They just look different depending on the yard, but also depending on the day and the time and the weather and the water clarity and on. So yes. looking at pictures, it's tough to really see what that's going to look like because that's a picture of what that looks like that day under those circumstances right then. Yes. I did a pool for my family years ago and it was Bordeaux. And you know what? Great color. It was amazing. But now that pool was what you call an organic style pool with flagstone decking. Now, granted, I never used pink flagstone, but the buffs, the tans, those colors I definitely did with natural rock waterfalls, but used that Bordeaux color and it's really a good color. I, I think it was one of the most spectacular colors. The challenge that killed Bordeaux 
because I've only done four Bordeaux mm. colors ever, is the ledge. Because the ledge does not reflect the sky, and the ledge, the Bordeaux is purple. Barney the dinosaur, come on. No, it's not that bad. It's oh. not that bad. I have some great pictures of that pool. But it's interesting because that came up when the ledges started being introduced and we started using these big, you'd have people go, they finished our pool with two different colors of interior. The reality, as Mike was just pointing out, is the depth of the water is going to make all the difference in the world as to how it looks. Right. So the deeper the pool, the more deeper the look is. And the shallower it is, the more transparent it's going to look. Right. So I think Bordeaux is a great color if you use another material on, or if you're a TCU graduate, you got that purple color here. So Really that purple? I did have one client that that's why they picked it. It's because it was purple for TCU? Yes, it was. They, yeah. they were downtown Fort Worth right there by the campus. But it's your watercolor. And then there's a lot of people that are into, I went to Seaside not too long ago and the beach vibe. They want that real light colors and everything, and they want the water to be a really light bluish green color, and it just gives a real fresh, clean look. Different colors of the pool, I usually look at those, again, with reflective of the style. I'm typically not going to put a black bottom pool on a Roman or a Grecian pool. That just doesn't fit. It just doesn't make sense. No, so But you, there's probably some out there that look great. I'm sure there are. Actually, I'm fixing to tear one out. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a Roman with, and it's a black finish. We'll have before and after that on our Instagram page in about two years. So there's two materials, the surface, the color of the water, and I reference a particular brand of product because that's what I particularly use. You can get those colors with other brands mm-hmm. of products as well. Then the other issue is the deck is the thing that adds the most impact as well as the color of the pool. Like the flooring on the inside of the house. You're living, looking at it, walking on it, cleaning it, dealing with it all the time. All the time. So it can be a concrete product. That can be a stone product. That can be a paver. That can be a lot of different things. And the texture and the pattern are all going to play an important part of that setting they're going to create. And you guys here in Texas seem to have gone through a period of time when you were doing a lot of exposed aggregate concrete decks around swimming pools. Oh, 30 years Almost ago. to the point of it's abrasive to even walk on. The traction was phenomenal. <laughs> I'm sure it was. But who wants to be out there roasting and having the bottom of your feet fried? Oh, the other thing is slip on that stuff and you get a nasty rug burn. We'll call it technology. As the industry has improved, we've got better products to work with and to deliver. But yeah, that was predominantly an 80s thing, I would say, early 90s. This is totally off the cuff here, but it it reminds me a little bit of when you hear people say stuff like, I don't want to have a pool or too much work, but they haven't had a pool since 1975 or 1980. Pools are very different now. They're actually relatively easy to take care of and maintain. Granted, you got to build it the right way. You've got to get the right products on there that match, that work together cohesively. But it is possible to have a low-maintenance pool. Not a no-maintenance pool, but certainly low-maintenance. For the amount of time that you spend in the space, it took you longer to cut the grass. Probably, for sure. So, But the decking, one of the things that I never thought of a lot until we started using a lot of it is with pavers is the pattern that those pavers create. Sure. Or porcelain tiles, the patterns they create. 
can work very well to accent the design that's there. You're talking Versailles pattern, Roman pattern, running bond pattern, that type of terminology. Correct. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you want to think about when you're considering it. I do a lot of with my geometric curves or asymmetrical design. I do a lot more Versailles pattern than I do rectangular pattern Mm -hmm. and a running bond which goes around some of the rectangular pools or symmetrical pools. So that's something to think about as well. Absolutely. I think the decking is very important and the tile on the pool. Tiles like the belt, your belt line, you're going to see three inches is going to be below the water, three inches above the water. So how do you bring that in so this stuff all goes together? What do you tell people about that? I have two philosoph- three philosophies with tile. I'm going to blend with the deck. Mm-hmm. So something that's understated that just flows with the deck material. So it makes the deck material look heavier, Mm -hmm. more mass. I'm going to blend with the water. So something that's going to be similar to the watercolor. So it's going to minimize the deck thickness. Mm -hmm. So it's going to bring the connection to that closer. And then I have the third party that doesn't want to blend with anything. They just want something that's going to stand out and look cool. So they want the sparkly things. They want the interesting patterns. They want the unique stuff. And one thing that with tile is sometimes that's easily how you date a project later on Mm -hmm. you can look at it and be like oh i remember the year that came out it was that one year and it's gone now i was at a pool a couple weeks ago that the pool is so old the tile is so old i've never seen it before i think it's before my time in the industry going back to the 70s wow and it's still there it's still there that speaks highly for the installation process on that maybe I thought you were going to tell me you saw one with the dolphins on it. I've seen those plenty of times. <laughs> when I used to go out, when I first started selling pools in, in 1992, I had two little fold-out albums, and it was like, here are all your tile selections. And people would be like, this is all? And I'd be like, yes, this is all. This is all you have to choose from. I think there were like under 20. And so that was the availability versus you go in a showroom today And you see a fraction of what's available and there's hundreds of tiles available in one place to look at. And like I said, that's a fraction of what's available. Yeah, because there's a ton of it. You just have to understand again what you're going to look at and how it's going to complement the space that you're going to be in. So that's one of the things is I do also a lot of projects that are new homes. The interior designer, because we'll sometimes be involved in this process as we look at materials and the tile and the stone and all the things. So everything, as you mentioned, most people want this to all flow with the home Mm -hmm. and fit. And so a lot of times they're involved in part of the team collaboration of coming up with all those solutions. And talking about this the last few times we've been here in the studio, what I am learning about your process versus my process is that you spend a lot of time having the homeowners you're dishing up product for them to pick for what they think about it. And my question is, because what, what typically happens to me in time as these relationships get developed, the people are leaning on me an awful lot to help them make those choices. And as great as I think it is that you are talking about it in the way that you are, I'm pretty certain that people are asking you pretty regularly, well, Mike, what do you think? What should we do? So you're the expert. So one of the things that I do is I try to prep the materials that I think would work well on a project 
and have those materials out when they go into the showroom mm-hmm. to look at materials. Yes, that question is going to come up. We're not sure what we want to do. What are you thinking? And if you have reasons for doing what you're trying to do and there's logic behind it and design theory and things like that, then most people are like, oh, cool. And sometimes they're like, well, I just don't like that. Mm. That's okay. Okay, then we can pivot from there and look at different options. But there are times that people are like, this is what I want to use. What do you think? And I'm like, the way that I usually say it, which usually gets my point across is, I'm not sure if I would photograph the pool with that on it. Oh, that's interesting. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, I don't think that's a great fit. I've done this a couple hundred times and I'm not always right, but there are times that I've done things and later on it's, I'll never do that again because that was a mistake. And I've on the, the opposite end of that, people have picked out stuff and I'm just thinking to myself, there's just no way this is going to look good. And I get out there and I'm like, it's pretty darn good. It looks pretty good. So yeah, getting them involved is certainly important. It's a space that they're going to live in, but yes, we are the experts. One of the things I was going to mention about the interior designers is a lot of times they're bringing materials to play that are used inside of the house, but they're not adaptable outside. And so they're like, oh, this is what we want to use. And something that's freeze rated is one of the first things that we're going to talk about with tile. Make sure that it's not going to shatter or freeze. That would be something that you don't want to Just the fact that the interior designer is now involved in the exterior design with us gives a little credence to what's going on. We're bringing the inside of the house outside, or we're pulling the outside of the house inside. This is a transition. This is a natural transition from the inside of the house to the outside of the house. And so now we're dealing with interior designers on the outside of the house. I had one the other day that loved all the stuff we picked. I was like, woohoo, we got it right. That's always fun. Anything else to think about on materials? One of the things I've noticed differently here, just off the record here or on the record, however you want to put it, is your rocks for rock waterfalls look very different from the natural rock water features that I'm accustomed to building in Phoenix. Now, we have a lot different rock formations to choose from. And even when you drive towards San Diego from Arizona, You can look to the right or to the left as you're coming over the passes and see all those beautiful surface select rocks that look natural and beautiful like they would in nature. And the rock water features that I'm seeing here, I think just because there's just not a lot of rock to choose from, just looks like a lot of the same style, same size, same type rock stacked to build something that water comes out of. And it doesn't necessarily look like what I would feel is a natural rock water feature. When people go to the stone yard and pick up boulders that they can handle that are the size of a basketball and you stack all those on top of each other, the word natural water feature does not appear in my mind at all. So that's a exercise of convenience and an exercise that, oh, Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner, you're going to get a four foot by three foot waterfall. No specifications were given on the size of the stone that was going to be used. So that makes it easy versus specifying something that has certain ranges of stones or certain sizes of stones would be a totally different situation. Are you saying that being ambiguous is a business strategy? It is by some. Yes, it is. Here locally, you go towards Austin and there's limestone slabs that you can pull out of the ground. But those limestone 
And some of them are on the surface and they're weathered and they're beautiful and things like that. You don't typically see a boulder. It's mostly slab material. Mm -hmm. You go to Oklahoma and you find boulders, field stone up there. You can get into a lot of boulders and into slabs. But those are the only two that are readily available around here. Most of the stone that's in Texas is quarried. And so you're pulling it out of the ground and chopping it into different shapes and things like that. And that's not real conducive for building an organic looking waterfall. Not at all. A lot of times people are going to go outside of this region to pick stone. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the gentleman wanted something that had a very definite pattern in it. That schist was a spectacular stone. I have not seen it used a whole lot. Mm. That's extremely heavy, but it came from Arizona. But I've dealt, dealt with quarries in Arkansas, quarries in Colorado are bringing stone in for us for different looks or different colors or textures and that type of thing. So it's different in different parts of the country for sure. I guess fortunately there's not that many pools currently being built with rock water features. It is not a trend at this moment. But the point I was really wanting to make in this is would go back to you have an estimate. It says, and you said a four foot by five foot by three foot tall water feature. What homeowner is going to know what that is if they haven't seen a picture of what that looks like? Additionally, the challenge we have as designers, especially when we're working with these design programs, is we can't make any natural rock waterfall look exactly like what's going to be delivered on site because every single one of them is different. All the boulders are different. They do things differently. So there's just no way to do that. And I think that's really critical because what are you getting? So the most critical thing that I tell people with a natural boulder waterfall is I need a picture. What are you talking about? So I understand stone size. Mm -hmm. So then it even comes down to the mason. Let's share the picture with the mason. So the mason understands what he's trying to do and create, not just, okay, I've got this pile of raw materials. How do I want to stack it up? Because as I explained, rock work is artistic. Yes, it is. And you can take the same delivery of stone and give it to three different people and you'll end up with three totally different looks from a same exact materials. The best way to end up with something close to what you're envisioning is a photograph. And I tell people, we aren't going to duplicate this, right? This is a guide to get you where you want to be. But yes, if you take a pool studio picture with a boulder waterfall in it, or even a photograph of it, but say we're going to replicate that in the field as a stretch, a very far stretch. So I'm not going to say it's impossible, but very unlikely because you don't know what's going to be delivered. Now, there are projects where people go out to the stone yard and literally hand select the boulders that are going to be brought to the project to be the backbone of the design done that many times so again you're headed in the right direction versus just oh deliver 20 tons here who knows what you're gonna do so that's a lot on rock water features which aren't being built a whole lot anymore so we're talking about some features what are some other types of water features that people are incorporating these days mike so for the most part most people are going to build some type of wall and they're going to have some form of feature come out of that wall so that's the most common and the most common coming out of that wall, I would say today is a sheer descent. So the way I would describe a sheer descent is it's a sheet of water 
like a piece of paper. It's all one piece. It's coming out of a reservoir that's built underneath the top of the stone and it's falling into the pool. There's some pros to that particular feature, which is, again, I said the most common, but there's also some definite cons to it. Did you have some issues with the plastic shear descents warping here? I've had issues of them being delivered, and by the time we got them in the field, you definitely didn't want to stack them out in the sun. But we had a project this last year that we had three delivered, and it was a very long unit. It was 10 feet long, custom fabricated, and the first two that were delivered were warped. And so somewhere in the transport process, they were warped. I don't know if it was because stuff stacked on them. I don't know, but they were in a pretty healthy crate. So that's a shear. There's a couple of challenges I have with shears. One is we talked about water likes itself, okay, a meniscus effect, and the fact that it will taper over distance. So Mm -hmm. when you have a shear that's three feet tall and it's six feet wide at the top, by the time it hits the water three feet down, it'll probably be four and a half or five feet wide. Sure. Because the sides actually pull together and they taper. And so I've had clients in the past that are like, I don't like that. Fix it. And I'm like, oh, when I was did it the first time, I didn't explain these things. So a client didn't know, understanding that we had a 12-inch wide shear. It was four foot tall. It went to a toothpick. It was like a dagger on the end. So it was a foot wide, four feet up. And at the time it hit the water, it was like one inch wide. They didn't like that effect. Well, there's nothing you can do to change that. That's water likes itself. And if you want a sheer descent, that's what it's going to look like. And the other thing that I found by virtual of screwing this up is also if I did a sheer descent and it was taller than four feet tall, the shear would fall apart. So it wouldn't stay together. It would fragment. And so it didn't come in as a sheet. It would come in as pieces. That's something that I learned is I couldn't have shears that were over four feet tall because of that situation that would occur. The other thing is they would catch the wind and they would sail. Water would go all over the place too. Those were all things I didn't expect when I first started using them. I think shears work great as long as you understand the nature of the unit. Like I had a project I did a number of years ago, there was a four-foot section, and right next to it was a two-foot section. The shears were the same width, but they looked different as they entered the pool. So if you point these things out to a client and they're okay with it, then they've made an educated decision, and they're not going to be like, fix it, which you can't. The other thing is shears are most commonly done in plastic. There's a lot of them that are white, but you can also get a clear plastic. You can get a black plastic. Some of them are manufactured in gray. Some are also manufactured in copper and brass, stainless steel. So there's a lot of different finishes you can get on this. Now, all you're seeing is a lip underneath the coping stone, so it's not a real visible situation. So that's probably the most popular one. Oh, Uh, for sure. The plastic is because it's the least expensive. Would you say it's the most popular feature? No, the most popular material for the shears is plastic. Oh, okay. So what would you say is the most popular feature? Water feature? Yeah. I'm partial to bubblers. Okay. They're simple. Yeah. And I started doing them probably over 20 years ago. And back when I started doing them in Phoenix, we literally were just cutting a pipe flush with the floor. 
and Mike, they all worked beautifully. Right. They weren't a problem. And it got to the point to where we were doing ledges that were 18 inches deep. And I would build a threaded riser that you could take in and take out and just have it come up about three inches below the surface of the water. And it would froth and foam and introduce oxygen and make great noise. And the kids loved it. And it worked great. Now we've got the type that are built into the pool, go up and down. There's all different types. But I like the bubblers because they're simple. And I also like the surface agitation just because that introduction of oxygen is just so good for the water. But any type of water feature is nice. It just, they all have to be executed in the way they were meant to be executed. So one of the things I really like about the gushers or something we used to call them bubblers in California is that the LED lights that now that you mm-hmm. can incorporate into them, which is a really nice feature to add some accent in the evenings. But the nice thing about those is the decibel rating is quite low. So you can very comfortably talk around mm-hmm. a gusher. That was a new word here for me, gusher. Yes. So what did you call them in Arizona? Everything's a bubbler. It's bubbler. either an LED bubbler or a bubbler. Okay. Anyway, so they may call them other things in different parts of the country, mm-hmm. but this is something that's typically in six inches of water. So again, there's no fitting that goes up through there. The water just travels through that. The fitting you were talking about is when you had them in 18 inches deep. Yes. So generally from a safety standpoint with six inches of water, no fitting is required. Right. So it's just flush. So it's really a nice feature. Going back to the shears, I'm not a huge fan of shears, but there's a product called a shear rain that was developed a number of years ago. And the shear rain has the same exact opening, except instead of it being open all the way across, it has little holes in it. So what you end up with is streams of water. So it looks like rain. It looks like rain, sounds like rain. The other thing is it doesn't taper because there's no sheet aspect of it. So they're individual streams, so they drop down straight. Particulates are far enough from each other, they can't connect. Correct. Mm -hmm. The other aspect of it, it's not affected by wind nearly as much. The one place that I see as a disaster is there's a lot of people that will take these units and they'll put them up in a structure Mm -hmm. and they have the water come out of that structure. A sheer descent is a train wreck because the water is going to fly all over the place. Like I said, it's like a sail and it just picks it up and it throws it all over the place. The other thing is it falls apart after four feet versus a rain works perfectly in a structure. So based upon where you live at, that could affect the decision with that. In North Texas, the wind blows a lot here. Right. In Phoenix, the wind doesn't hardly blow at all. That's true. So... Maybe that's why in other parts of the country, I'm like, why in the world did they do that? So you're saying they don't have the wind. I am saying we hardly have any wind to deal with in Phoenix. Okay. Valid point. That's one of the reasons I suppose why it feels so hot there is because there's no wind and it's just melting us. There are some water features that you can get that are mounted on the deck. So So like uh, deck jets or laminars. Correct. Totally different. Or cannons. You throw a cannon in there too. I hear that word a lot around here is cannons. So deck jet or cannon Remember jet. the Alamo. Yeah. I don't know if it goes back to that, but these are jets that basically you have a small nozzle that's either mounted inside the deck or right under the coping, it sprays water in it. So I've found with those, the decibel rating with those is extremely high. So they're very difficult to talk around. Are you talking about the deck jets or the laminars? Oh, the deck jets or cannons. Yes, I would agree 100%. Yeah, because when you're asking for sound effect coming off a laminar, my experience is there isn't one. 
No, and there's a big difference between these two, and this is something that gets caught up or gets brought up quite often, is we want those little things that shoot out over the pool. That'll be the question. Okay, but there's the two different types. And I tend to call the deck jet something entirely different because if I'm out in the woods and I got to go to the bathroom, it's going to go all over the place if the wind is blowing. Same thing here. Where the laminars has a tank built in underneath the ground, that tank takes all the oxygen out and it actually looks like a tube squirting out over the pool. That's literally a tube that you can send light through. It's a continuous, it's continuous column right. of water that's not broken up at all. At the Scottsdale Mall in, in Scottsdale, there's a laminar water feature in there. It comes down from the ceiling and it's quite fascinating because it, you can't tell it's water. They're so tight, those tubes that come down, and it just is a really a unique water feature for sure. So a perimeter overflow or a vanishing edge spa, I'll never forget the first time I built one at a home show, and people would go up and sit on the edge of it all the time because they didn't realize water was running across it because they expected to hear sound of water. when. It, but if you touch the side of it, it's wet all the time. Yes, it Water's is. running over all four sides if it's built properly. So... Again, with water features, there's two things I ask people all the time. Are you looking for a visual effect or are you looking for a sound effect? Because those are two different things. Absolutely. And a lot of clients' answers are, I want both, which in that case, a lot of times I have two different features, one to create a visual effect and the other to create a sound effect. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is a lot of times those will be put on separate pumps so I can run them independent of each other. The other thing is a lot of times they're on variable speeds, so I can control. I'm going to go back to what you just brought up because that's a big key thing. Yes. Okay. For those of you listening out there, if you have a pool and a spa and you decide you want a water feature, it has to have its own separate pump like Mike just talked about. Otherwise, you are not going to be able to sit in that spa and enjoy your water features. And I've seen this hundreds of times on estimates and I'll ask the homeowner, are you planning on having your water features on when you're in the spa? Absolutely. You can't. It's not possible. It's not doable. Right. Because your spa pump and your everything on the pool shuts off when you go to spa mode. Right. So if those aren't on a separate pump, also hydraulically to perform things and energy efficient wise, you'd want that anyway. But that's a side note. But yes, you want to be able to control your features. The more control you want over features, the more you want them broke up on separate pumps. And those pumps a lot of times also need some filtration to it, not just water coming in and out. That may sure. work on a boulder waterfall, but mm-hmm. a lot of your other features are going to get clogged up unless you're using filtered water. Mm-hmm. So that's something that has to be done with a laminar jet is you have to have a filter system on that particular one. Yeah, the laminars are pretty spectacular looking. Those look good. That's not my favorite thing, but I think they look great. So one thing with laminar jets, again, because I'm here in North Texas and I've been, places I worked, they're all been windy. I haven't really thought about it that way, but a laminar jet in a typical backyard is a train wreck because the wind's going to blow it. It's not going to look like you want it to. You spend all this money. The feature doesn't work. I can't get the light to go through it. It's not functioning. The only places I use laminars are typically like in a courtyard, Mm -hmm. which is heavily sheltered or some place that they don't get a lot of wind because of the terrain or the trees or that type of thing. But that's just something you need to understand is if you're looking for the water to perform a certain way, it may do that in an ideal situation, but it may not do it on your mountaintop that you're sitting. 
Yeah, and the cost difference between laminars and deck jets substantial. Probably 10 times. Absolutely. Yeah, but they're totally different effects, as you're saying. But what I've seen is that people don't really know which one they're getting. They're getting a cannon jet. Again, it goes back to specifications. Yeah. Unless it's specified that it's a laminar and you're getting a jet that's squirting water out, that you're probably getting a cannon jet type situation. So we've got gushers, we've got shear descents, we've got... The different types of scuppers, there's all different types of scuppers. Right. It's another type of water feature. They can look good. There can be cannons and scuppers, cannon scuppers. So even go back to my early 90s days and with our Grecian and Roman pools, we had spitting lions. That is true. Yes. So I did one not too long ago on a Spanish style home that they wanted it to match up with a courtyard situation. We put those on some columns that went into the pool. So you design commensurate with the property. Yes. I like it. But again, it goes back to features. You have to understand what you want it to do so we can make sure that we give you the right one. Because if you just say, oh, I want to share descent, and I give you that, and I don't explain to you the pros and the cons and sometimes the costs that are involved with those, to me, that's a disservice to you because it's not going to perform how you thought it was going to. Do you think that every pool should have a water feature, Mike? Yes. I do too. Hey, we agree on something. Yeah. The thought of having water without any sound, you've lost a lot. And it's one of the reasons why I started doing those bubblers so long ago, because it was so easy and it was really inexpensive at the time and cut it off with the floor, be done with it. In fact, we put an eyeball fitting on it because sometimes that pipe wouldn't be exactly plumb. And so with an eyeball fitting on it, I could adjust the flow. And then with a valve, you could adjust the flow even more. So we could fine tune it. And getting back to the whole, or talking about the tuning of pools, I always felt like you could fine tune these pools like you could tune a car, but you've got to have the right stuff. You've got to have the right mechanisms, the valving, everything's got to be available. And that's a whole nother topic anyway. So pools allow you the opportunity to create awesome space with customized features that fit your architecture, your wants, your needs. It's a fun adventure in coming up with the different solutions that can be done in the backyard. I agree. Good program today. We'll look forward to the episode next week where I think we're going to talk a lot about safety and auto covers, and fencing, some other fun things as well. That'll be a great one. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of Poolside Perspectives podcast with myself, Kevin Woodhurst, and Mike Farley. We hope you have a great week. Thank you. This show is all about helping you become a better buyer, a better pool owner, and hopefully you're going to find some insights into how to enjoy your pool even more so, how to help your friends, your family, anybody looking to buy a pool in the future or that want to remodel their backyard, add an outdoor fireplace, fire pit, add an outdoor kitchen area, add some shade cells or whatever else it is. We want to be that resource for you. And that's the end goal here. And we promise that there's going to be a ton of information. We'll try to go through it, you know, as relatively quickly, but also slow so people can understand. But the intent of the show, the reason Mike and I are doing this is because we just got a lot in our heads and we want to share it. So we hope to see you here every single week. Thanks for listening.